Hello, and welcome to another episode of Envisioneering Exchange, the podcast where industry leaders discuss the most important topics in sustainability, climate change, buildings, and urban efficiency. I'm Vic Marinich, Global Marketing Director for Danfoss, and I'm delighted to be the host of this podcast. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we have Steven Splitzer from Comores on the show to talk about new refrigerants and U.S. building codes. Steven is the principal engineer for Option Refrigerants at Comores, a company focused on developing chemical solutions that enable environmentally friendly technologies. Steven, it's an honor to have you on the show. Thanks, Vic. It's great to be here with you today. So most of what we're going to be discussing today is an update to state adoption of building codes to allow the use of low GWP refrigerants, which are often flammable or mildly flammable in residential, commercial, and light industrial applications. So we've done a lot of um, podcasts in this uh, season, but I think today we get really kind of down to the brass tacks, if you will, right? I mean, as you know, the driver for these uh, updated building codes are new refrigerant restrictions implemented under the AIM Act or the American Innovation and Manufacturing Act under the US EPA's SNAP program, that being the significant new alternatives policy, and various state laws. So while we've talked a lot about what's going to be required, you know, below 750 or 150 or what have you, GWP, really what we're going to get into today is the how does that get implemented into the codes and into the buildings and, and into law so that uh, we, we know what we need to do going forward. So can you maybe start off by telling us how each of these relate to one another as part of the HFC phase down? Sure. Maybe just a little bit of background for your audience. Um, Perfect. 2016, parties to the Montreal Protocol agreed to the Kigali Amendment. And this amendment basically laid out the framework for a global phase down of HFC refrigerants on a GWP weight basis with the intention of doing this to help fight global warming and climate change. Now, at that time, there's no federal regulation or mechanism in place in the U.S. to allow an HFC phase down to happen at the federal level. So a number of states, uh, in particular some members of the U.S. Climate Alliance, decided to go ahead and take matters into their own hands. And chief among them, a primary example, uh, is California, which we'll talk about a little bit. But what a number of these states did was they put legislation in place that effectively enacted the requirements of EPA SNAP 20 and 21. Now, you might remember SNAP 20 and SNAP 21 basically delisted a number of commonly used HFC refrigerants in a host of end uses, products like R404A, R507, 410A, 134A even. Now, ultimately, the courts largely vacated the SNAP 20 and 21 rules, but states still went ahead putting legislation in place that made them essentially effective in those states. Some states went even further. I mentioned California. Through CARB, the California Air Resources Board, they basically put in place um, regulations that help phase out higher GWP HFC refrigerants, primarily by putting in place sector controls or 
GWP limits on what products can be used going forward. Now, that's at the state level. At the federal level in 2020, Congress passes the American Innovation and Manufacturing, or AIM Act, and this gets signed into law by President Trump in December of 2020. And basically, this law gave the EPA the authority to administer an HFC phase down where they had to reduce U.S. consumption of HFCs on a GWP weight basis to 15% of our baseline over 15 years, ending uh, January 1st, 2036. A lot of people don't realize we're actually already under that phase down. We've already had a 10% reduction in consumption, but January 1st next year, we have to meet a 40% reduction from the baseline. That's a big change, and there's a lot of segments of our industry scrambling to get ready for that change. Now, with the EPA's newfound authority, they've been hot and heavy working to get all the pieces in place to make sure this transition happens as smoothly and effectively as possible, to make sure we meet the requirements of the Kigali Amendment and the AIM Act. One of the first things the EPA did is the allocation rule, where essentially they determined how much HFCs we can consume as a country and how much allocation individual companies or manufacturers or stakeholders have. More recently, and probably of great interest to your audience, is the EPA in December of last year issued a proposed technology transition rule. Now, this is basically putting in place the sector controls, kind of similar to what CARB did in California, but at the federal level, where the EPA is basically using two mechanisms to help transition away from higher GWP refrigerants. First, they're putting in GWP limits, sometimes similar to what CARB did, but in some specific end uses, they're actually prohibiting the use of certain refrigerants, kind of like what you saw previously under SNAP 20 and 21. So that's kind of how all these pieces are interrelated. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting. I think you brought a lot of clarity there, how in some cases we try to manage, if you will, the GWP levels and we're, we see various agencies pushing for whatever it is below 750, below 300, below 150 GWP. But then in other cases, like with SNAP, we just see the outright delisting of a refrigerant, which of course, right, are the high GWP ones. So we've seen different approaches uh, uh, in the past and now we need to kind of, I guess, all come together and, and see how we, we implement this. So you mentioned 2024 is kind of going to be a, a watershed year for us here when it comes to the refrigerant transition. Can you give us a brief overview of those upcoming refrigerant restrictions and what kind of deadlines we see ahead of us in January 2024 and 2025? Absolutely. Keep in mind, though, that the technology transition rule is proposed right now. And it's actually open for comment till the end of the month. So everything we're talking about here in terms of the EPA rule is potentially subject to change. So take all this with a little bit of grain of salt. So CARB in California, they actually put in place sector controls on HFCs in a wide range of engine uses, not just air conditioning or refrigeration. And in commercial refrigeration, January 1st last year, they put in a 150 GWP limit 
on new systems using over 50 pounds of charge. And that basically means that you can't put in a new supermarket rack system using R404A, R407A, or even R449A. You need to move to a lower GWP product, or you need to change your system architecture to use smaller refrigerant charge sizes. They also basically put a 750 GWP limit on air conditioning new equipment. Now that's staged in starting January 1st this year. That limit comes into place on new window units and dehumidifiers where you can no longer use 410A, for example. 2024 is air conditioning chillers. You're going to have to move to something else. 2025 covers most residential and light commercial air conditioning systems in 2026 for VRF. What the EPA is proposing is a little bit different. We'll start on air conditioning. In their current proposal, the compliance date for most end uses in air conditioning is January 1st, 2025. Couple exceptions would be VRF, similar to what CARB did, and also mobile air conditioning is January 1st, 2026 but they're going to a 700 GWP limit. A little different from CARB at 750. Net effect of that for products that have already been SNAP approved or listed by the EPA for that end use, no real difference. That could only potentially affect new refrigerant entrants that might be trying to get into the market. Now, the refrigeration side of the technology transition rule is more of a mixed bag. There's certain end uses where it's real cut and dry, January 1, 2025, 150 GWP limit, and that's ice rinks, vending machines, and your standalone retail food refrigeration units. For larger field-erected style systems like cold storage, industrial process, supermarkets, and remote condensing unit applications, they actually have two GWP limits. For systems with less than 200 pounds of charge, they're proposing a 300 GWP, 200 pounds or more, 150 GWP. And what that does in that smaller style equipment, it allows us to use more efficient lower glide refrigerants, potentially products like maybe an R454A or something that are just above that 150 GWP limit. You know, I think if I look back over these last few years, I think we've really seen a lot of cooperation between the private and public sectors when it comes to this transition. I mean, it's a heavy lift. I know certainly we don't want want one side uh, driving and telling everybody uh, how to get things done. So I think it really has been a good joint effort in getting stuff done, right? And we're seeing national laboratories involved. We're seeing commercial refrigeration and air conditioning equipment manufacturers involved, fire service experts, chemical producers and everybody really working uh, together to update these relevant safety standards. And that's really primarily what's driving a lot of these changes, right? Are those safety standards as we transition away from the current HFCs to lower GWP refrigerants, which might be um, mildly flammable or, or flammable. Some examples uh, on the standard side, um, maybe some know the ASHRAE 15 and 15.2 standards are working on being uh, updated. From the safety side, UL has uh, several standards as well. Uh, sorry for all the, the long numbers here, but 60335-2-40, which is uh, you know, with regards to air conditioning, and 60335-2-89, which uh, talks about refrigeration, are all being updated and optimized for 
what our future is going to be with uh, mildly flammable and flammable refrigerants. That's a lot of stuff going on. So can you maybe share what kind of progress you've seen being made these last two years? What do you see are the major accomplishments that we've done with these standards? Um, what else is planned? We've got all these, again, right? UL, ASHRAE standards are great, but they're not law. I mean, those are standards that, that independent uh, parties are, are writing. At some point, we need to get these standards into codes or into law, right? So that they can be executed. So how do you see things over these past few years developing? So that's a lot of ground to cover. So let me try and do these one at a time here. Yeah. And maybe you can keep track for me. Um, let me start with UL 60335-2-89 or what I just call 2-89. That's the product design standard for commercial refrigeration applications. Now, we're currently on the second edition, which just got published in 2021. It's a very recent standard. And what we did in the second edition was we updated it. Previously, the first edition only allowed you to use 150 grams of flammable refrigerant. So you're talking small, self-contained equipment only. But it's been updated to allow for a larger charge sizes and broader use of flammable refrigerants in more applications. For your higher flammability refrigerants, your A3s like propane, you can potentially use up to roughly 500 grams, depending on whether your appliance has doors or drawers, but you're still restricted to self-contained equipment. Now, for your lower flammability refrigerants, your A2Ls, maybe something like a 454C, you can use it in self-contained or field-erected equipment. And in field-erected equipment, depending on your mitigations, you can get up to maybe 75 to 80 kilograms of charge in most system designs, and in some cases, even beyond that. So really expanded where flammable refrigerants can be used. Now, they didn't just do flammable refrigerants. There's also updated requirements for CO2, particularly around pressure testing requirements to help make sure new installations going in the field are safer. So they really covered the gamut of low GWP refrigerants in UL 2-89. Something is important to note is, you know, when we say updated for safety and those things, it's not a bunch of people just sitting in a room deciding, is it uh, 150 or 130 or 200 grams or whatever it is. I mean, this is all backed up and supported by a lot of testing, right, by various agencies, right? I mean, UL, HRI, and so on. So, you know, when we talk about safety, I think the industry is taking this really seriously and getting a lot of the testing done and th that's needed to make sure we have safe products. So that's truly the case for uh, 2-89. How about for uh, 2-40 in the air conditioning side? Okay, so 2-40, product design standard for AC. They just published the fourth edition December of last year. Now, the third edition had already updated the requirements for flammable refrigerants for larger charge sizes. But what the fourth edition did, I think you were kind of hitting on that earlier, what the fourth edition did was this tremendous body of research that has been produced by the industry by groups like AHRI, ASHRAE, DOE-funded projects to try and make sure that the move to low GWP and flammable refrigerants is as safe as possible, that we have the information we need. So there were a lot of updates and improvements taken from that research and incorporated into the fourth edition of UL 2-40. A lot of those might be around concentration factors for refrigerants, mitigation techniques, and a lot of work on refrigerant sensors because you're going to see a lot of sensors and equipment where there weren't before. So that really made the 2-40 standard 
not only safer, but more user-friendly, we'll call it, for OEMs who now have to design equipment to these rigorous new requirements. And something maybe uh, also I think is important to point out, both of these standards, 60335-2-40 and 2-89, come from an international standard, right? An IEC 60335-2-40 and 89. So again, it's not uh, a bunch of people in a room just deciding what's right. It's coming from the international community, which has been investigated. And then, of course, we look at it with uh, the nuances of the American market and look to make sure it fits our needs here in our market. So again, this really is even a global effort that we're doing to ensure safety with this uh, next generation of refrigerants. So that covers the UL standards. How about when we look at ASHRAE 15 and 15.2? Okay, so ASHRAE 15 is the application or installation standard for most air conditioning refrigeration systems, and they just recently published the 2022 edition. Now, they took 21 addenda from the 2019 edition and built them into the body of the standard. So that's more updates and changes and improvements than any edition before. So it's a huge body of work. Now, a lot of that is around flammable refrigerants, but there's also a lot of improvements for piping requirements, leak mitigation techniques, refrigerant detection, ventilation, releasable charge, and they also completely wrote the sections on volume and charge calculations and flow charted it to make the standard a lot easier to follow. So a tremendous amount of work to get it to where it is today. Now, ASHRAE 15.2, again, published in 2022, that's actually the first edition. And this is significant because 15.2 is the first U.S. installation standard specific to the residential air conditioning market. These systems used to be covered on our ASHRAE 15, but they weren't very heavily regulated, you might say, because they were using A1 refrigerants like R410A that didn't have a lot of charge, then there wasn't as much of a safety concern. But now you move to low GWP refrigerants, many of which are flammable, the industry felt there was a need for a new standard specific to that market segment. And that's what 15.2 is. And now that it's out there, it's a companion to 15, and those systems in 15.2 are no longer covered by the 15 standard. So if you're working on residential, you need to know 15.2. Which I guess makes sense, right? I mean, to have one standard covering everything from a, a small two-ton residential unit up to a 2,000-ton centrifugal chiller, right? Maybe a isn't the best when we start talking about some of these next-gen refrigerants. So good uh, that uh, we called out the residential side uh, specifically. So we've got some ASHRAE and some UL standards that are in progress. What else is planned? What are the next steps there? Well, one of the things I tell people if you're working in standards, safety and innovation never stop. We're always learning things like, shoot, maybe we um, missed something in a previous edition of the standard, or, you know, there's no perfect standard. And new products and new innovations, new technologies are always coming into the market. So you're always working on that. And that gives you a little bit of job security. But there's actually a major effort about to start with Canina on the third edition of the UL 2-89 standard, where we're taking all that research again and all those updates that we looked at in the UL 2-40 standard, and now we're applying them to 2-89 in the industry really, really needs that to make these systems, you know, 
safer, more user-friendly, and to have more options of how you can get where you need to be when it comes to system design and safety. So I'm really excited about that work. It's just about ready to start. And can you maybe for the audience, who is uh, Kanina? Kanina is basically a group working on harmonization of standards in North America. Sometimes it's just the U.S. and Canada, but a lot of times you also have Mexico as well. Mm -hmm. Thanks. We mentioned before how this really has been a team effort, public, private sectors all involved in making sure we have good safety standards. So, of course, uh, that's the right way to go. And, and we want to make sure everybody's got input. The flip side of that, of course, maybe it can be a little difficult to get everybody to agree to everything that needs to get done. So how do you see the greatest challenges with updating these standards going forward? Well, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there. These are open consensus process standards where you have people from many different walks of life, all with different perspectives, backgrounds, and motivations coming together. And you don't always agree. So there is definitely some headbutting go on. There's definitely some jockeying for position. But most people realize that at the end of the day, you're working on safety and you can't sacrifice that. So maybe, you know, when you reach consensus, there's some compromise. And maybe it's not perfect for everyone. You don't get everything you want, but you make sure that what we're doing is safe and that we're improving our standing when it comes to safety in the industry. But there's also a big issue with harmonization because none of these standards exist in a vacuum. And a lot of times work is going on in parallel on these standards. And what you have sometimes is maybe these groups aren't working as closely as they could. And you get different requirements for the same thing. So let's take, for example, a sensor that you use in an air conditioning system for residential versus commercial. And the requirements are different, but maybe they don't need to be. And that's a big issue because it requires more testing, more design work, maybe even a different piece of equipment for doing the same thing. So there's a big effort now trying to coordinate so that we're kind of where we can using the same requirements and eliminating some of that conflict. Mm -hmm. Great to hear that, looking to simplify things as much as we can as well, right, without sacrificing safety. So we've got all these standards now that we've talked about, and they're continuously being updated. But for them to be acted on, if you will, they need to be adopted into the actual building codes, ultimately into the state building codes. But I guess the states are uh, looking at a couple of different model codes when, when they work uh, up their own legislation. So how is that whole effort going forward? And where do you see the main gaps as we approach 2024? So model codes, ideally, they're updated first and they serve as a template for the states where they can adopt the model code entirely. They can amend it as necessary or they can create their own developments or their own requirements if need be out of whole cloth. So ideally, you do the model codes first and then the state codes doesn't always work that way. It hasn't worked that way a lot of times recently. So here's where we're at. First, I'll talk about the I-Codes, the International Code Council, and I'm primarily going to focus on the International Mechanical Code or the IMC, International Residential Code or IRC, or International Fire Code or IFC. So the 2024 cycle is now complete, and overall for our industry, we're in pretty good shape. We've got the latest updates from ASHRAE 15 and from that testing and research that we talked about. We got the latest updates, that language into the code. 
And we've got the most recent editions of most of the standards referenced by the codes, ASHRAE 15, 34, UL 2-40, UL 2-89. So overall, good shape. There are a couple gaps. The development of the refrigeration standards has been lagging on the AC side. So we're a little light on language around commercial refrigeration in the codes. And also ASHRAE 15.2 wasn't referenced or adopted into the residential code. Now, you still have low GWP refrigerants like A2Ls enabled from language that they put into the residential code, but definitely for the 2027 cycle, we're going to have to focus on commercial refrigeration requirements and getting ASHRAE 15.2 into the code. Can we briefly touch on the uh, the electrical codes? Have there been any modifications to uh, NFPA 70, the National Electric Code, to adjust for the flammable refrigerants? If we're talking about NFPA 70 specifically, I'm actually not aware of any changes going on in that specific code. Now, some of the other NFPA codes, NFPA 1, fire code, or NFPA 55, or NFPA 400, there are updates in process around what are called MAQs, maximum allowable quantities, or for warehousing of A2L refrigerants. And there are some minor construction requirement differences around A2Ls in NFPA 1, but nothing I'm aware of in NFPA 70. But um, probably, though, NFPA 1 is the last of the model codes that I think we've really been focused on. Maybe we should talk about the state codes, too. Yeah, absolutely. How do we see them on the state codes? So right now, by my count, roughly half of the states have enabled the use of low GWP refrigerants and air conditioning, like A2Ls, either through direct updates to their state codes or through legislation. That basically means half of the states aren't there, okay? Nothing in place to allow for the use of these products. And even the states that have legislative updates, they still need at some point to get their state and local codes adopted. Now, on the refrigeration and warehousing side, again, we're further behind because the standards development there is further behind as well. I think what you're really going to see over the next two years is a major push from the industry, all hands on deck, to get all 50 states across the line so that come January 1, 2025, where a lot of those sector controls potentially kick in, the whole country can move forward with the HFC phase down and be able to install new equipment using low GWP refrigerants. Right. Yeah, for sure. If We've got product that's uh, not allowed to be installed, and yet the codes aren't ready to accept what those new solutions are that, that can make a mess two years from now. So let's hope all that gets squared away for sure. So there's been a lot of progress clearly in the U.S. and Canada to update equipment and building safety standards, but we know the whole rest of the world is uh, working on similar issues, right? We see Europe is pushing far ahead, even China working on their their own things. How do you see the safe transition to low GWP refrigerants unfolding in, in other parts of the world? And is there anything that we can learn from what they've done or what they're doing here in the U.S. and Canada? Europe is a good bit ahead of us in terms of their HFC phase down. They've been working under their F-gas regulations for some time now. And looking at what's happened there from the outside, some people might describe some points in their transition as rather abrupt, okay, where maybe they weren't as ready as they should have been. 
The other thing is Europe has really been plagued by a lot of activity on illegal imports, refrigerants being brought across borders illegally from multiple different countries. And that's really had a negative impact on their transition and successfully moving away from higher GWP refrigerants. And that's something we've been closely watching here in the U.S. and Canada and organizations like the EPA and others have been trying to address to make sure that our transition is as smooth as possible and that we minimize the impact illegal imports have on moving away from HFCs. So it seems like uh, we're learning a bit from what's uh, been going on in Europe and other regions. How about if we flip the script here? And since uh, right, we're doing some things uh, here on our own, do you see the U.S. being able to influence any of the safety standards in those other regions? And if so, how? Absolutely. So you mentioned earlier, there's international versions of the standards. So we have UL 2-40 and 2-489. We also have IEC 2-40 and 2-89. And there's a huge effort on harmonization because as a manufacturer, I don't want to have different requirements for every single country for a product, or I don't have to make a different product for every single country. So what happens is we start with an IEC standard like 2-40 or 2-89, and then that starts as a template or blueprint for different regions or countries to work from where they modify that or they create national deviations. And if you look at the UL versions of 2-40 or 2-89, they're much, much bigger than the IEC versions. And a big part of that, it's not just our specific requirements, but a lot of the research and the work that was spearheaded here in the U.S. by groups like AHRI or ASHRAE gets incorporated into those standards. And that research doesn't just stay in the UL standards. It gets incorporated into the IEC standards as well over time. And sometimes different countries will opt to use our standards as their go-to rather than working from the IEC standards. So this is really an area where the U.S. can definitely lead in. Yeah, for sure. This is a really dynamic part of our industry. I think uh, over those next couple of years, as uh, legislation changes, as we move towards these lower GWP issues, we could probably go on for an hour or so talking about all this kind of stuff. But just wondering if you've got any uh, last comments or words you'd like to give before we uh, end the podcast here. Yeah, Vic, first, thanks for having me. It's always great to work with Dan Foss. I think one of the things this shows is there's a tremendous amount of changes that are occurring that we need to get ready for. Dan Foss and Camores are both sources of great information. And if anything, I urge your listeners to get up to speed, get training, find out what's going on. So thank you. Awesome. Thanks. That's it for this episode of Envisioneering Exchange. And I'd like to thank my guest, Stephen Spletzer of Comores, for joining us. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to Envisioneering Exchange on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Lastly, if you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate, review, and share it with your network. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time. This podcast is for information purposes only. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Envisioneering Exchange podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and not necessarily represent those of Danfoss LLC and its employees. Danfoss LLC is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening on this site. This podcast series does not constitute professional advice or services. This podcast, including Danfoss LLC and the producers, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects of information contained herein. Opinion 
opinions of guests are their own, and Dan Foss LLC in this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about the guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast. The developers of the Envisioneering Exchange podcast site assume no liability for any activities in connection with this podcast or for use of this podcast in connection with any other website, computer, or playing device.